Well, last week was the first full week of Lent, an important season of the Christian calendar. Lent begins on Ash Wednesday and is a 40-day period of reflection characterized by fasting and prayer in preparation for Holy Week, which starts on Palm Sunday and culminates on Easter Sunday. For many Jesus disciples who've undergone significant deconstruction, like the kind that we finished talking about in the last series, Refined, the church calendar offers us a way of reconstructing our faith in a holistic and embodied way. One of the reasons that Lent is so important is because it's a way to get God out of our heads only and into our embodied lives. Lent is a season when we're invited to be formed once again by the story of Jesus. During Lent, we're invited into the pattern of Jesus' life, particularly his journey to the cross. That's why Lent invites us to contemplate our mortality with the ashes on Ash Wednesday. Lent also invites us to take inventory of the... Our, of the ways our lives have been conditioned by this world and caught up in its corruption. Lent invites us to confess our sins to God, seek God's mercy, and to embrace a posture of repentance. This is why Lent is often accompanied by fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline that makes a drastic demand upon us, which disconnects us from comfort and disrupts patterns of sin. In doing this, fasting creates space that God rushes in to fill by capturing our attention in a new way, thus opening up new possibilities. A pastor of mine used to love to say, you can't get something new from God by doing the same old thing. So fasting is a powerful way for us to take charge of how we're being formed. Because whether we realize it or not, we're being formed every day. Just by going through the motions of our lives, we are being formed by the practices in which we participate. Fasting is a way of exposing some of the ways that we are being malformed. One of the ways that we are being malformed in modern Western culture is by practices that reinforce individualism, which is why we must be careful and intentional about expanding our observance of Lent to expose the ways that we are not only held captive by personal sin, we are, we are also held captive by social sin. Our Lenten teaching series this, this month is framed by a passage from Isaiah 58. This passage calls God's people to repent of divorcing our personal spirituality from seeking justice in society. Here are verses 5 and 6. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fast I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? This passage teaches us that God's people can sometimes hide from God's will behind religious practices. It's not that personal spiritual formation is wrong or bad. It's that it's incomplete without social application. God's will for our lives 
is that our personal formation would produce public justice. Because justice is what love looks like in public. I once heard a story about uh, a pastor who loves to climb mountains. And one, uh, on one of his frequent mountain hikes, he began walking alongside another hiker. And this hiker and he kicked up a conversation and they were having a good time, talking about lots of things and getting along great. And then at some point, the man asked the pastor what he does for work. And the pastor told the man. And then his demeanor changed entirely. Now he's berating the pastor about how hypocritical Christians are and how worthless the church is. And he said, if the church really wanted to be a force for good in the world, it would stop all of the, the worship gatherings and just serve others and seek justice. To which the pastor replied, but it's worship that forms me into the kind of person who loves to serve others and wants to seek justice. And that is why we observe Lent. So that the story of Jesus, the pattern of his life, forms us more and more into the image of Christ. In becoming more like Jesus, we become more ourselves. As we become people who love like Jesus loves. So as we look at our text this morning, we're going to be looking not only for the personal application, but we're also going to be looking for what this text has to say to the whole church in relationship with society. So before we dive into our passage, could we pray for the Holy Spirit's illuminating work? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, once again, we need you. We need you to shine your light, your illuminating light of revelation upon the scriptures we read this morning. And we need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that your word today would be like a seed. And it would take up residence in our heart like a seed, that it would go down deep and take root, and then it would bear fruit in our lives, fruit that will last. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So if you have a translation of the Bible, you could turn in it to the gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 4, or you could follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil came, said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, 
he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. In Luke's telling of Jesus' story, this temptation scene takes place at the very commencement of Jesus' public ministry. It takes place directly after Jesus' baptism by John in the River Jordan and directly following an extended genealogy that is designed to link Jesus to his ancestors through Joseph's line and to, and to all humanity through Adam. If you recall in Luke's gospel, the baptism scene goes like this. John baptizes Jesus and then a, a, the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove and a voice from heaven says of Jesus, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This is important because it's Jesus' identity that is directly challenged by the devil in the wilderness. In this way, the text beckons each of us personally and all of us corporately to ask this question. Who do we let tell us who we are? There's pretty profound applications to this identity thing. God pronounces belovedness over each one of us before we ever do anything for God. God's love initiates relationship with us and isn't conditioned by anything. God loves because God is love and God can't deny God's self. But we shouldn't miss the corporate application to this. Here at Roots, we say that we are a community of misfits finding identity in Jesus. But it's also true that we are also tempted corporately to let other voices tell us who and whose we are. It's way too easy for us to find identity elsewhere. The only reason why Jesus was able to withstand the devil's temptations is because his identity was rooted in who God says he is. This is both something that we are being taught personally and corporately as the body of Christ. Because the voice of the devil will always challenge us to try to prove who we are, compromise who we are, or relinquish our identity entirely. At the start of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us that he's filled with the Holy Spirit and that he's led by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit leads him to a very strange place. Well, it might strike us as strange. To our modern sensibilities, it might seem counterintuitive for God's Spirit to lead someone into the wilderness because culturally, we're often disconnected from a couple of things that would make this passage a lot more intelligible. First, we're disconnected from ritual passages or rites of passage. We're often disconnected from intentional retreats of solitude. Both of these were very commonplace in Jesus' culture and they continue to be very commonplace in many indigenous cultures around the world today. For example, Victoria Lors is a pastor in Ojai, California. And she writes about spiritual practices that connect us with creator and creation. She writes, Despite what many pastors throughout history like to teach, the wilderness is not a hot, barren, and desolate desert in Palestine, nor is it a spiritual situation where dark nights happen in your soul. Wilderness, Eramos, is just a place where people aren't. It's a real physical location of non-population of humans. It's a place outside Jerusalem where shepherds took their flocks to graze because there was plenty of food 
a place not defined by empire, outside Jerusalem and Ojai and even Detroit, a place where humans nevertheless belong and are deeply connected but do not control. So Jesus is led by the Spirit away from people into intentional solitude. And this is actually a pattern throughout Jesus' ministry. After extended times of of ministry among large crowds, the Gospels say that Jesus would often retreat to quiet places to pray to the Father. In fact, Jesus' disciples have been doing this all throughout church history. Retreating to solitary places of prayer, even having monasteries in the desert. So this particular journey into the wilderness is not completely unusual, but this particular journey is a special kind of journey. Another thinker who's been influential on me and who I've, uh, I've, who's helped me think about the social application of Jesus' temptation a lot is a guy named Ched Myers. Here's what he writes about Jesus' journey into the wilderness. He says, Jesus' desert retreat seems strange to our modern ears, and, consequent, and consequently, it has been ignored or relentlessly spiritualized or psychologized in churchly interpretation. It, spe- it bespeaks, however, of an ancient practice that is quite intelligible to indigenous peoples the world over. Largely lost to contemporary urban cultures, this tradition survives among most land-based tribal peoples. The Sioux name it the vision quest. The vision quest is a ritual passage into selfhood. So we see that Jesus is led by the Spirit into intentional solitude and through a ritual passage similar to a vision quest. And there Jesus confronts the devil, which is not a proper name. In the Bible, the devil or the Satan is more a role description than a particular person. Diablos in the Greek is the equivalent of hasatan in Hebrew, which means the accuser or the slanderer. So I agree with N.T. Wright, who says, the story does not envision Jesus engaged in conversation with a visible figure to whom he could talk. Rather, the devil's voice appears as a string of natural ideas in his own head. They are plausible, attractive, and make, as we would say, a lot of sense. So this, this brings the story more into our lives in a more realistic way. None of us is going to be approached by a, a sinister-looking cartoon devil with, you know, pitchfork and a tail and horns. But each one of us is, has the potential to hear the devil's voice in our own lives, sounding more like common sense. And uh, as a side note, this is a really good movie uh, that I highly recommend. Uh, it stars Ewan McGregor, who's like amazing actor, and it's, um, it's all about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. Uh, so check that out. You can rent it on Amazon, whatever. But there's one last piece of context that we have to talk about before uh, we can get to the temptations. And this piece of context will help us understand the social dimensions of Jesus' temptations. Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness is patterned after Israel's 40-day wandering journey in the wilderness. It is, as we would say, a retracing of the footsteps of Israel in order to discover where their journey went wrong. This vision quest is, in other words, seeking a radical diagnosis 
that moves beyond symptoms to the root causes of the historical crises of his people. This connection between Jesus and Israel in the story is going to help us see more of the corporate application of these temptations and not just the personal ones. For example, in the first temptation, turning stones to bread, at a personal level, this is the temptation to avoid self-denial. Why should we ever not indulge our desires? Why should we not act on every impulse? If it's natural, how could it be wrong? Why shouldn't we express every thought that comes to mind? Why shouldn't we possess everything we want? And why shouldn't we do whatever it takes to get to where we want to be? At a personal level, this is the question of self-discipline, even discipleship. Because Jesus will go on to say later in Luke, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. By tempting Jesus to turn stone to bread, the tempter tries to dissuade Jesus from following his own path of self-denial, of humility, and of powerlessness. And this becomes our temptation too. Every day, in a thousand little ways, the water that we swim in, it beckons us to throw off self-discipline and indulge ourselves in order to placate us and ultimately to enslave us. Self-discipline is proof that we are not slaves to our flesh, nor to the patterns of this world, that we are free to submit ourselves to God. But there aren't just personal applications of self-indulgence. We are collectively tempted to abandon what I'm calling the exodus economy for an economy of empire. And I'll explain what that means. Back in the, um, you remember the series we did on, some of you will remember, the series we did on Sabbath, uh, developing patterns and rhythms of rest in our lives. We talked about this account in Exodus, in the wilderness, when God is providing for Israel their daily bread. And it says in Exodus 16, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And see, this is where the Bible begins to lay the groundwork for the laws of the Torah that ensure Israel will be responsible for the most vulnerable members of society. The vulnerable members of society in Israel's day were the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. Widows and orphans, of course, were vulnerable because it was a patriarchal culture. If you didn't have the male provider, you were destitute. And of course, foreigners were more likely to be discriminated against. So in Exodus, we begin to see the, the, the new community that God is forming out of these people rescued from slavery. God is forming them to be a just society. A society where every human being is treated with dignity and equity. Later, the Torah will contain laws and customs that are designed to care for the poor in Israel. An example of that is gleaning. Gleaning in the Torah was when you were prohibited from harvesting the corners of your field so that others with fewer resources could come along and harvest those corners. And that's just one example of the many ways that God tries to form Israel into a just society. I'm calling this the Exodus economy. This 
Exodus economy stands in stark contrast to the economy of empire. All throughout the Exodus narrative, even though God continually provides for Israel, the Israelites continually long to go back to Egypt. Having internalized imperial appetites and desires, the people cannot imagine life apart from their dependence upon the very system that enslaved them. Today, all around the world, we see this economy at work, if we have eyes to see it. It is ex exploitative and extractive. It does not live in harmony with the creation, but it decimates the creation. It does not treat workers with dignity and equity. It exploits workers. In the wealthiest country that has ever existed, inequality is at an all-time high. Will the church stand firm against the seduction to participate in this exploitative and extractive economy? Or will we fall victim? An exploitative and extractive economy is also linked to a violent, militaristic, and nationalistic culture. The second wilderness temptation is one in which we find one of the New Testament's most provocative insights. Jesus is tempted by the devil with dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil actually says to Jesus, they have been given to me and I can give them to whoever I want. This feels like a particularly challenging temptation at a time like this in our nation. A time when we are so politically polarized. The rhetoric in the U.S. around securing political power, not to mention patriotism and nationalism, is always heightened in an election year, right? And yet, perhaps now more than ever, the church is tempted to seize the levers of power and wield them to our own advantage. It feels like now more than at any time that I can remember, millions of Christians are waking up to the idolatrous allure of political power and trying to seek ways to decouple the church from the state. And yet at the same time, it seems like now more than, ever, than, than any time I can remember, millions of Christians are hopelessly hypnotized by that exact same power. At both a personal and social level, this temptation has to do with allegiance. If you were around during the Radical series, you might remember the Radical series? That was a while ago. If you were around during the Radical series, uh, I preached a message called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. It's named for a book uh, by that title written by Matthew Bates. And the reason why he wrote this book is because the Apostle Paul taught that the Jesus way was about faith. But hundreds of years removed from Paul's day, we have domesticated this idea of faith. We have stripped it of all its social and political connotations. For Paul, faith in Christ was political. It was social, religious, economic, spiritual, physical, emotional. Here's what Matthew Bates writes. Although contemporary Christian culture tends to separate personal salvation and discipleship, allegiance is where they finally meet. And they don't just meet, they embrace a person is not first saved by faith in Jesus, in Jesus' death for sins, and then, once that is secured, plunged into a discipleship program as an optional extra in the hope that she or he might grow. On the contrary, a person is first saved when she or he becomes a disciple 
by declaring allegiance to Jesus as king. That is, when a person agrees to submit obediently to Jesus' wise and sovereign rule so as to take up his way of life. Every day in a thousand little ways, we are tempted to bow down to other lords, other masters. We are tempted to give our energies, the energies of our lives to other pursuits other than the renewal of all things. We are tempted to uh, hold back a part of ourselves from totally submitting ourselves to God. We're tempted to harbor idols in our hearts and to place trust in principalities and powers. So here's another rhetorical question. In a country with the most powerful military in history, will the church stand firm against the seduction of violence and idolatrous nationalism? Or will we fall victim to it? An exploitative and extractive economy linked to a violent, militaristic, and nationalistic culture can only inevitably produce a blasphemous religious community. The third and final temptation in our passage today takes place at the pinnacle of the Jerusalem temple. That's the site of a satanic temptation. Nowhere less than the center of Jewish religious life was where the devil tempts Jesus to throw himself down. But the devil has brought backup. He brought with him the Bible. That's right. The, devil, the devil's voice can sometimes quote scripture at us. This teaches us that religion has the potential to be used in the service of the devil. And it teaches us that scripture can be twisted by those who have ulterior motives. Ched Myers writes, This powerful statement of God's protection of those who abide can also too easily be misunderstood, like so much of Scripture. When read through the hermeneutics of power and privilege, the psalm becomes a tune of entitlement, a hymn to invulnerability, and finally an ode to empire. The devil twists this psalm, a psalm that is meant to bring comfort. He twists it into a weapon that he dares Jesus to wield against God. This weaponizing of the Bible doesn't end in the wilderness. It happens every day. For the past few weeks, I have been reading, slowly reading, a book, a new book by Mark Charles and Sun Chan Ra. It's called Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. I haven't finished reading it yet, but I can already highly recommend it because I can tell this book a lot of research has been put into this book, and I'm incredibly impressed by it. Charles and Ra have pinpointed patient zero for European colonization, and it's the papal edicts of the 15th century which declared that non-Europeans, non-Christians, were non-humans, and it gave Christian Europeans the right to kill and enslave whoever they found and whoever's lands, and to take whoever's lands they discovered. All along the history of European colonization, the church has been right there giving its religious justifications and sanctifications. But it goes back even further than that. It goes back to the 4th century when the first Roman emperor, Constantine, legalized Christianity and even eventually made it the state religion. This unholy marriage between church and empire has produced untold amounts 
of carnage. And it even reaches right here to Minnesota. Here in Minnesota, God only knows how many native people were slaughtered in the settler colonialism of this state. Our perennial temptation is to enlist God in our pursuits, no matter how evil they may be, and thereby to domesticate God, to identify God's name with our projects. Remember that idols were gods who actually do our bidding. Jesus' rebuke of the devil here in the third temptation is a powerful declaration that it is not God who attends to our demands, but the inverse. God is holy, and God is to be honored. God is not a plaything or a mascot for human empires. On a personal level, we are tempted to do our own thing and then ask God to bless it, right? I'm just going to do my thing, make a lot of money, have a lot of kids, or whatever you want to do, and then God will bless it. We're tempted to routinely align our lives with our own priorities instead of God's priorities. But on a corporate level, religious institutions are tempted to serve as chaplains to the empire, to preserve their own power and wealth. And religious communities are tempted to twist scripture, to prop up those empires, becoming blasphemous. So one last rhetorical question. In a country where the majority of the citizens claim to be Jesus' disciples, will the church stand firm in its refusal to collude with empire, or will we fall victim? Given that Luke's account of Jesus' wilderness temptation seems to be very carefully curated, I don't think it's a coincidence that later in Luke, when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, it looks like Jesus' prayer directly correlates to the wilderness temptations. In defense, of, in defense against blasphemous religion, Jesus teaches his disciples to open our prayers with a reminder of the holiness of God's name. In defense against idolatrous nationalism, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come. In defense against the economy of the empire, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God to provide for our daily bread. I think that it would be a very formative practice, Lenten practice, if we were to challenge ourselves to daily pray the prayer from Luke 11 as a reminder during Lent that these perennial temptations that we face we face them personally, and we face them corporately. And I think it would be a way of, of inviting God's Spirit to energize our holy resistance against the devil. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and could we recite this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, us, and will you commit to praying this short prayer each day for the remainder of Lent? Let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Now let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the way that he blazes a trail for us. The way that he is a pioneer. 
He goes before us and He shows us His way. And we follow in His footsteps. But Lord, we are in need of Your strength. We are in need of Your Spirit. We are in need of Your courage. Help us to resist the temptations of this world. Help us to resist the ways in which we are tempted to make bread from stone, to trust in ourselves, to indulge ourselves, and to indulge in this uh, exodus, this uh, economy of empire. Instead, Lord, let us trust in you. Let us rely upon you and be dependent upon you for our daily bread. And Lord, may us, may us reject the economy that is exploitative and is extractive of the creation. And God, I pray that we resist the temptation to trust in horses and chariots, principalities and powers, princes and kings, to place our entire allegiance to Christ, to bow our knee to only one king, Jesus. Help us to resist the temptation to trust in the, in the political machinations of this country, Lord. And finally, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and courage to resist the temptation to be a mouthpiece for empire, to put a blessing on the ways of this world, to sanctify and justify the violence in this world with religious language and prayers. Keep us from defaming your name, God, from profaning it. Help us to remember that you are holy and that we don't enlist you in our service, that you have enlisted us in yours. And God, I pray that you would give us the strength to resist the devil. Help us to collectively be the body of Christ and know who and whose we are and not allow anyone else to tell us who we are. We pray all this in the powerful, holy name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.